So Philippians chapter 3, when uh, the Titanic went down, over a thousand people went to their watery graves. Um, as the news of the tragedy spread, of course, everyone was uh, very desperate to know the state of their, their family, their loved ones. And remember back then they didn't have things like cell phones and uh, news sites or uh, news programs or radios or uh, internet. Uh, so the information was very hard to come by and very slow to get at. And so the White Star Line in Liverpool, England uh, set up a huge board in their office where they uh, were going to list the names. And so they wrote on two pieces of cardboard, known to be saved, and attached to the board, and then known to be lost, attached to the board. And as the names came in, they were assigned either to one of those categories or the other, known to be saved or known to be lost. And so people gathered around the, state, uh, the uh, office there, hundreds of people crowded in day and night waiting for the next messenger to come in with the next update to see if their loved one's name was going to be written down and where it was going to be written down, known to be saved or known to be lost. You see, it didn't matter whether that person traveled first class or second class or third class or whether they worked in the the galley swabbing decks or something. None of that mattered. Didn't matter why they were traveling. Didn't matter their position, their, their wealth or lack thereof. The only thing that mattered to them is where that name was going to be written, known to be saved and known to be lost. And Paul is referring to the same two categories here in this passage spiritually. Those who belong to heaven and those who belong to earth. Known to be saved, known to be lost. Now the difference is, in the physical realm, in death, you couldn't change from being known to be lost and move the name over to being known to be saved. Once it was there, it was there. That was the end of it. Death is the end. But in the spiritual realm, if you're, if you're known to be a lost, you can be transferred to the side that says known to be saved. In fact, I would submit to you that one time, all of us were in this list, known to be lost. But God in his grace reached down to us And disclosed to us the gospel of Jesus Christ that he came to die for our sins and rose from the dead. So that if we would believe in him, our name is now known to be saved. So I want to tell you today as we talk through this, as we talk about those who are known to be saved and those who are known to be lost. Those who are of heaven and those who are of earth. That if your name is over here, it can be over here by God's grace. So in uh, these verses, we're going to start in verse 19, or focus on 20 and 21 of Philippians 3. But 
the four descriptions that we looked at last week in verse 19 regarding those who are lost, those who belong to earth, are contrasted in verses 20 and 21 with those who are known to be saved, those who, are, who belong to heaven. So just to remind you back to verse 19, uh, in fact, the university 18 talks about them as enemies of the cross and then describes them in verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Now the contrast in verse 20, 21, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things unto himself. So, here are the four contrasts. that Their end is destruction. Our end is heaven. Their God is their belly, meaning their, their sensual appetites. Our God is the Lord of heaven. Their glory is in their shame. Our glory will be revealed in our resurrected bodies. They eagerly look for the things of earth. We eagerly look for the king of heaven. And so our citizenship is in heaven. And uh, just two main points here in this message. First of all, heavenly citizens live for another kingdom. You may remember at the beginning of our study on Philippians, uh, now 10 months ago, um, uh, and if you remember this, then I'm uh, very proud of you, <laughs> you might remember that we talked about uh, the city-state of Philippi that had the unique blessing opportunity uh, because Caesar Augustus had bestowed upon them the coveted and unusual distinction of being claimed a colony of Rome. That meant that every person born in Philippi was automatically a Roman citizen. And we have little idea of the importance of that today. Um, uh, but it was very unusual and a, a, something highly prized. Um, so even though Philippi was in the, the country of Greece, they were citizens of Rome, uh, located, separated from Rome, but just as if they were in Rome. Uh, Philippi was even called the Little Rome. And they were quite proud of their citizenship as uh, Roman citizens. And when a baby was born in Philippi, it was important that his or her name were right away registered on the list of names for citizenship in Philippi. Because being a citizen of Philippi meant you are a citizen of Rome. In fact, Paul refers, I believe, to this custom in chapter 4, verse 3. If you look at the end of chapter uh, 4, verse 3, he talks about his fellow workers for Christ whose names are in the book of life. And so the distinction is their names are in the book of 
Philippi, therefore the citizen of heaven, our names are in the book of life, therefore we are, did I say they were citizens of heaven? Citizens of Rome, our name is in the book of life, therefore we're citizens of heaven. So Paul is drawing upon their culture and customs and applying uh, some wonderful things to the believer. For instance, uh, the people of Philippi were loyal subjects to the emperor of Rome. And we as believers are loyal subjects to the emperor of the universe. The people of Philippi were registered citizens in the roll book of Rome. The believer is a registered citizen in the roll book of heaven. And when the roll is called up yonder, we'll be there. The city of Philippi was an extension of Rome in Greece. The church is an extension of heaven on earth. The city of Philippi was not in Rome, but it belonged to Rome. The church is not in heaven, but it belongs to heaven. And so Paul is weaving in these kind of contrasts uh, as he's saying these things to the Philippians, which would have been more um, readily apparent to them than it is to us. Sam Gordon wrote, You live on planet Earth, but you belong to another world. You set your tent up here, but you don't put your roots down here. Christians are not vagabonds without a home. We are not fugitives on the run from home. We are pilgrims traveling home. We are pilgrims traveling home. We are not home yet. But as believers, we have our registration and our reservation in heaven. And so Paul writes here, verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven. That's our home. That's where we belong. That's where our Lord lives. That's where our King reigns. We are citizens of heaven. So what does that mean for us practically if we are citizens of heaven? You know, theologically, spiritually, it means that we belong to that kingdom that is an eternal kingdom. It will never end. But how about practically for us today as we live? We are citizens of heaven, what does that say about our view of government or politics, for instance? If your citizenship is in heaven, what does that say about government or politics and our um, involvement with that? Think about Jesus when he walked this earth. How involved was he in the politics of his day? Because his mind was on the kingdom to come. And you see, the problem for us that can, can creep in is that we set our hopes on men and women. We set our hopes on politicians. Why we would do that, I do not know. Uh, or we, we set our hopes in government, that government's going to handle the problems of our society. Have they ever? Is it getting better? 
don't pin your hopes there. We are citizens of heaven. Now, I do think, as personally, as a believer, that I should be uh, involved, like in voting and so forth. I should have, I have the privilege of having a say. I should exercise my right to do that. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, and we should support you know, uh, candidates, especially if we can find those who are godly. I'm just saying that our hope is not in those things. Uh, this applies to me personally because uh, um, I used to be overly involved in what's going on in the political scene. Um, and I remember uh, listening to one particular radio commentator. Um, if you listen to him, you get a rush. And I would walk, I'd come away from listening to this just, just so upset. How, how could those liberals be so dumb, so whatever, and, and having unkind thoughts toward them and being so agitated in my spirit? And, you know, finally God got a hold of me and said, showed me, what kingdom are you living for? What kingdom are you looking for, Gary? What kingdom are you investing in? Maybe it's not that way with you, but to some degree, I think we all kind of fall into the trap also of kind of looking for others, for mankind, society, government, whatever it is, to be the answer to the ills of this world. It will never be. We, we pin our hopes on the stock market, or um, other things. That's not where our hope should be. Our citizenship is in heaven. Earth will never satisfy. It was not meant to. Psalm 1611 says, the psalmist says to God, in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's where our focus is. At your right hand, Lord. I'm glad to be a citizen of the United States. It, it is a unique privilege in this world. As I've traveled uh, to most of the continents in this planet and little islands all over the place. And every time I am... So grateful to be a citizen of this country. But my citizenship in heaven overrides, overwhelms, overrules my citizenship here. My allegiance is there. We are ambassadors here. We are citizens there. So we look to heaven our citizenship is in heaven. We look to heaven. Our Savior is there. Our citizenship is there. Our inheritance is there. Our loved ones in the faith, they're there. Our treasure is there. Our reward is there. Our destiny is there. Our citizenship is in heaven. So we are pilgrims on this earth, seeking first the kingdom of heaven. 
We live for another king and another kingdom. And secondly, heavenly citizens look for another king. Verse um, 20 goes on to say, For our citizenship is in heaven from which, from heaven, we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 1.11, as the disciples looked up at Jesus as he transcended into heaven before them, into the clouds, the angels said to them, Why are you standing around looking up into the clouds? Don't you know he's going to come back in like manner one day? So, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 3.13 says that believers should be looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Looking for that. The blessed hope, glorious appearing of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.7 says believers are those who are eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We eagerly wait for the Savior. We look with anticipation and expectancy and eagerness for Him to come back. May it be soon. And we're not looking for an event. We're looking for a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are eager for his return because we know when the king of glory comes, he will set the record straight. We know when he comes, he will do away with injustice. He will reign in righteousness. He will do away with conflict. He will establish peace. We're looking forward to that, to his arrival and what he will do and how he will reign. I have a dear friend, Lowell, who uh, I talk to at least once a week. And, and uh, you know, we share with each other things going on in our lives and struggles and problems of the world and how we would solve them if we were in charge uh, and so forth. And we just kind of laugh at each other at doing that. But... Something struck me. One time I realized that he always ended the conversation with, with saying this. These five words from Revelation twenty two twenty. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. That was his way of saying, with all the things wrong in the world or wrong in our bodies or whatever it is, the ultimate answer is always this. Even so, Come, Lord Jesus. We're eagerly waiting for that. Because when he comes, then we'll have the right answers. Then things will be made right. They will not before he comes. So don't pin your hopes on any of that. We eagerly wait for him to come. And we're also eagerly waiting for not just heaven's king, but for a heavenly body. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, 
according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So I just want to briefly talk about two things. First of all, the transformation power, then the transformation process. Uh, He will transform our body, and it is, in case you're wondering what this would take to do it and how he could do this, it is according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Everything in the universe, every atom in the universe, he is able to subdue to himself. There is not one renegade atom in the universe. So how is he How is he going to do this transformation of our bodies, especially bodies that have died, that he will resurrect? Well, um, one medical doctor, a certain uh, Dr. Thomas Miller, in his book, uh, Did Jesus Really Rise from the Dead? um, Says that the body contains perhaps as many as 100 trillion Cells. Each one of them carries out thousands of different chemical reactions. So, um, more than a hundred trillion cells, each one of them carrying out thousands of separate chemical reactions. Thus, a resurrection would require phenomenal power to energize life into all these individual cells. But it would have to do so in such a way that specialized nerve cells could resume their unique function. Heart cells to perform theirs. Blood cells to perform theirs. Bone cells and so on. At death, he writes, all these cells not only halt, but they crumble into microscopic dust. Thus, a bodily resurrection will require that thousands of processes and trillions of cells must be put back together and then restarted all at once. This would require not just incredible power, but also unimaginable knowledge. It is still a mystery how the cells in our bodies interact. Jesus Christ will have to know all of the information in trillions of cells in each of our bodies and then have the power to refashion all of it and then restart all of us all in the same split second. Paul writes it this way in 1 Corinthians 15 that he does it in a moment in the twinkling of of an eye and we shall all be changed and we shall be raised imperishable and this mortal shall put on immortality in a split second all of us not just all of us but every believer through all the ages who has ever died in that split second it is unimaginable power and knowledge I want to focus on the transformation process, that the process of this lowly body being made a glorious body, uh, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his 
glorious body. It is now lowly. I don't care how much you beautified your body today, made its outward appearance look good. I don't care how much time you spent in the gym, how buff you are. Maybe you're as buff as I am. Hopefully more. It's a lowly body. But it's going to be transformed to be a glorious body. Now before we look at the rest of what he says here, I want to um, take a detour to Romans chapter 8. Verses, uh, we'll start at verse 16 through 18. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, uh, starting at verse 16. For the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We talk about him coming back in glory and reigning. And, and guess what? We are joint heirs with Christ. That is, how, why would he do that? The same reason, why would he save us? None of us deserve it, right? But we are joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. Now, he's not saying that um, that suffering brings about the glory, that suffering saves us, but rather that the, the suffering is a, is a demonstration of our commitment to him, our willingness to suffer for his sake, no matter what it is. It's a demonstration that we are indeed children of God. He goes on to say, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It's not even worthy to be compared. It's like a little bit of suffering. If you, if you loaded all of life's suffering together in comparison, it would be a little bit, but the glory is like you can't reach that high. It's not worthy to be compared. We just don't see it yet. And then um, go down to verse 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. If you're a believer, your soul has already been redeemed. You belong to Jesus forever, but not your body. Your body has not yet been redeemed. It will be. Your soul is redeemed. You're safe. You're going to be in heaven. But your body, when it dies, is going to go into the ground. It's not going to heaven. There's coming a day when God's going to take that body and raise it and make it a body fit for heaven, a resurrected, perfected body. So we're waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. That's what Paul is talking about in Philippians 3. So let's go back there. Verse 
Because God will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. So note carefully the the wording here. He will transform our lowly body. God is not going to discard our old bodies. He is going to transform them. It's not like, you know, if you have a set of clothes that you have just torn to pieces, they're rags, they're filthy, they're good for nothing but to throw in the burn pile, and then you go get a new set of clothes. It's not like that. God's going to take our bodies, which are torn and uh, ragged and filthy, and he's going to take that same body and make from that lowly body a glorious body. He's going to take who you were, or people think of someone a thousand years ago who died. He's going to take that and make it a glorious body. And how he is going to do this is, is beyond me. But how, how can he, how will he take the dust and ashes of multiple millions of people scattered throughout time, scattered around all the world, on the earth, and even in the ocean, and take that, what's left of that, and make it into a glorious body. Think about this. Someone a thousand years ago who was a sailor who died out in the sea, and they got gobbled up by a fish, which got eaten by another fish, and so forth, and so forth. What about them? God knows where every strand of DNA of that person is. He's omniscient. And we think that he's, he, he surely couldn't raise someone like that up. I mean, think of all the iterations, all the uh, generations of fish or however it got used. All that DNA scattered all over the world. Tiny, tiny microscopic pieces now. We think that God knows an awful lot. But we don't really think he knows everything. Because God knows where every strand of DNA of that person who died a thousand years ago is today. He is omniscient, all-knowing. All-knowing means he knows all things perfectly and always has. So... Uh, We don't know how, but we do know who, right? And because he is omnipotent and omniscient, he is able to do this. He will take uh, that little bit of genetic code and make from it a body fit for glory. In fact, a body which is glorious from that little bit of DNA information. It reminds me a little bit of of original creation. Remember, uh, God made Adam out of dirt. But to make Eve, he needed something a little bit more noble than dirt because after all, she's a woman. So he made her out of Adam's rib, right? And, um, and fashioned her from the DNA or whatever from, from that material. Uh, but it reminds me of um, a story of... Uh, 
young boy who had been in Sunday school and heard this lesson of uh, God's creation of Adam and Eve. And that Sunday afternoon, he's at home in his yard. He's running around and running around, and he starts getting a kind of ache in his side, and he runs in and tells his mom, Mom, I, I think I'm going to have a wife. But God is going to take this lowly body, even if it's just reduced to ashes, he is going to take it and make it a glorious body. In fact, how glorious? Who will transform our lowly body that may be conformed to his glorious body. Not just a glorious body, but it's going to be like the glorious body of Jesus Christ. Like that. Like his resurrected body. So this gives us some clues about what our glorious bodies will be like. We don't have a full catalog of what that is, but we get some clues from Jesus' own resurrected body. Or at least what he was able to in the time he was here, revealed to his disciples about it and to us from the stories that we have of his appearings. So, what was his resurrected body like? Think back about when, when Jesus came back and he appeared to people. Um, what would you say? Now, I need you to teach me this morning, so you tell me. What was his, what was his body like, his resurrected body, when he came back. What are some characteristics of it? He ate, right? Uh, he um, ate with the disciples there. In fact, another time he even uh, had a fish fry for them out on the beach and invited them in and had breakfast with them. He, he was able to eat, so his body was able to uh, enjoy food and drink and eat. And So, well, our bodies will have, they'll be real physical bodies. What, what else? What about, else about his body? Someone else. Yes, the amazing thing that uh, if you think about his uh, having a glorious body being um, just kind of a, a spirit thing, it's not like that. He had the marks on his hands and feet. In fact, this is one of the identifying marks of Jesus in that in the time to come, he will be the only one in heaven who will have marks on his body, scars, because all of ours will be gone, but he will forever bear the marks of his crucifixion as a testimony. It's a great, what, so what else? He was unrecognizable at first. Yes, this is an important thing. Uh, think about when he first appeared to Mary, she, she thought he might be the gardener at first, right? And then he revealed himself to her. Or when he was talking with the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he walked with them. At first they didn't recognize him. It wasn't until the breaking of bread that they recognized him. And he opened their eyes so that they might see. So what does that tell us? He didn't look exactly like he did before. Now, now some people suggest that it was because they were not expecting to see him. They knew he was in the grave, so they certainly weren't expecting to see him that they were so mystified. But I think it's more than that. I think that his appearance had 
changed had been perfected. Because when Jesus came to earth, uh, Isaiah 52 says, there is no beauty about him, no comeliness about him that we would desire him. In other words, he wasn't this, this big, hulking, handsome guy. He was an ordinary-looking person, had his own uh, defects and so forth, but now perfected, a body perfected. And so he was hard to recognize at first. What else about Jesus? How did he appear to people? So he wanted to, wanted to come and see the disciples. What did he do? Yeah, he just appeared there, right? He just passed through the wall. He wasn't there. Next moment, he's there. And so our bodies are going to be like this too. So we're going to, we're going to have these physical characteristics. We'll, we'll have real physical bodies. We'll, we'll be able to, to eat and so forth. Um, but we can pass through walls. He also could transport from one place to another. And so will we be able to? So imagine having a real body that could pass through a wall. It's, I know it's beyond our imagination, but it'll happen. Or a body that can transport from one place to another in the bleak of an eye. And uh, we'll have perfected bodies. That is, the blemishes and stuff that we have now are going to be gone. It'll be the same body. You're not going to have a different body there's uh, what theologians call a continuity of the resurrected body. That is, the body that you have now is the body that you'll have then, but it will be perfected. Um, all the lumps and bumps gone. All our scars gone. All the blemishes gone. will be in our perfected beauty. But each distinguishable. You will be uniquely you. We're not just going to be uh, cookie-cutter uh, believers like angels in heaven or something, but uniquely you, recognizable as you, by your personality as well. You'll have, still have your same personality, but without sin. Um, so we, we learn a few of those those things just in thinking about what Jesus was like. Um, you will be uniquely you with, with no sin inside and no blemishes outside. In fact, you will be glorious. You will be glorious. You will be perfected in glory. You will outshine the angels. In fact, if we could see you now as you will be then, we would all be tempted to bow down before you and fall on our knees and worship you. That's what you will be like. In glory. If that's what you will be like then, for eternity. You see, here's Paul's point. If that's your end, their end is destruction. Your end is glory. Then isn't that so much better than setting your mind on earthly things? Why would you waste your time doing that when God has all this for you? 
Why, why would you eat out of the garbage pail when he has a banquet table for you? So, these, are, these verses remind us of the place to which we belong, the person for whom we look, and the promise to which we cling. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. In fact, this verse is in your uh, notes if you have them. Uh, 1 John 3, verse 2 and 3, I think a, a great verse for us to end on. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We, we talked about some of the characteristics of it this morning, what, some of the things it looks like, but that's just the tip of the Titanic iceberg. There is a whole lot more we can't even fathom we in our humanness and our finiteness are not ready to receive this yet. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard the things which God has reserved for those who love him. It has not yet appeared what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. We will finally be like Christ. And remember earlier in this, uh, the same passage in this context, he's talking about pressing on this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, pressing forward to what is ahead, that I might lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. I press on toward the mark, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ, that I might be like him. I'm pressing on towards Christ's likeness, and one day I will be, and you will be. When we see him, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And in that moment, there's something about seeing him. A transformation takes place the moment we see him. Like that, we are transformed. Now listen to the rest of this. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So we're not just waiting around for that to happen. We are pursuing it now. All of us who have that hope in him, the hope of glory, all of us that have that hope, we are purifying ourselves just as he is pure. And to do that, we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, without which we could do nothing. We rely upon the grace of God, which is readily made available to us. So this is your end. This is where you're headed. This is your destiny. You are going to be glorious. In fact, God counts you as already glorified. In Romans chapter 8, he said, those who he predestined, those he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those he predestined, those he also justified. And those he justified, those he also glorified. 
all the verbs are past tense. In God's mind, you are already there. It's so sure that you will be glorified. He counts it as a done deal. You will be glorified. So let's not set our minds on things of the earth. If you have been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Don't set your mind on things of earth. Set your mind on the things of heaven. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ appears in glory, then you will also appear together with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these blessed and sacred truths. Thank you, Lord, that in your grace, you have not only saved us, but you have guaranteed us a glorious eternity, none of which any of us deserves. But we are, we are all looking to you and looking for you. We eagerly wait for your return we eagerly anticipate the, the redemption of our bodies. We eagerly anticipate eternity with you in glory. And for now, Lord, as we live on this planet awaiting your return, awaiting you to call us home to you, whichever happens first, may we live for you. May we seek to purify ourselves just as you are pure. And may we share the good news of Jesus Christ with others that they too may know eternal life in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.